listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the mood. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The dollar rallies on U.S. housing data and ECB stimulus outlook. U.S. stock indices a little changed at record highs. Crude oil slumps to a three-week low and six Chinese are accused by the U.S. of stealing wireless technology. Japan futures rise in advance of its GDP data. We'll discuss more on markets with Nomura's uh, Michael Kurtz. Then uh, international Spanish banking group BBVA's Alicia Garcia Herrero will tell us more on the PBOC's new QE plan. And our last guest today is Fitch Ratings' uh, Andrew Colquhoun on the China market slowdown. Stuart Aldcroft, our regular Wednesday co-host, is back with us this morning. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So, U.S. trade secrets stolen by six Chinese citizens, including two professors. Is this par for the course, or is this just a huge embarrassment? Both. <laughs> um, I think the, the you know we've, we've heard so many times from the U.S. that the concerns about secrets of all different sorts being uh, taken, stolen in some way or another, um, they probably just wanted to uh, give a bit of publicity to it right now to give embarrassment. Yeah, the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice has uh, charged these uh, six Chinese citizens with economic espionage and theft of trade secrets from two U.S. companies to benefit Chinese universities. And uh, this includes the Tianjin University and also two companies controlled by the Chinese government. The professors had previously worked as engineers at Avago and Skyworks. Well, on a different note, U.S. stocks closed mixed as investors eyed renewed gains in yields and the dollar ahead of the Federal Reserve meeting minutes. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at a record for a second day in a row, ending at 18,312. The S&P 500 briefly extended gains to hit a new intraday record but failed to close higher. And the Nasdaq fell into negative territory after coming within 10 points of its closing high of 5,092. And oil is at a three-week low with Brent crude at $64 and 0.02 cents. Goldman Sachs has predicted that oil will reach $45 by October. Bloomberg's Alex Steele reports. Uh, Goldman Sachs coming out with another note saying that they see $45 oil by October, uh, in part, of course, by all the oversupply we've been seeing, plus the recent rally in oil going to bring back shale producers. They're going to hedge production. They're going to um, fill and drill and complete their wells that haven't been yet, which all is going to add more production to the market at a time when we're going to see refiners actually go out of work in the fall. So you're going to have stronger supply, not as much demand from refiners, and that's going to create even a more glut, and we're going to retest the lows that we've seen $45 call uh, by October. And that's part of why we're seeing this uh, decline today. Well, oil prices uh, fuel M&A activity in the energy sector. Here's Bloomberg's David Weff. 
oil prices have yet to really truly settle out uh, the, the difference in what a company should sell for. There's still a wide gap between what the buyers want to pay and what the sellers are willing to, to take for their company. Uh, and so once there can be a little bit more confidence in where that oil price is going to settle at, that's when I think you'll start to see that bid and ask price uh, come closer together and actually see some deals start to happen. If the price settles in for a while, that allows the sellers to say, uh, all right, I'm not worried about uh, the price going any lower and maybe this recovery that I thought was going to happen in a V-shape is not going to happen, so maybe now is the better time for me to go ahead and sell my company now. And one of the mm. big periods that we're looking for on the producer side is this redetermination period in the fall when banks look at the loans again and they try to reassess uh, how the how the loans are uh, backed by uh, the values of the oil fields, and with lower oil prices, those are likely to be um, downgraded. And so, you may have some more oil companies coming in for a pinch, and and they may have to look to to sell themselves around that time period. U.S. housing starts were positive, but the question of when the Fed will raise interest rates is still looming. Jeremy Hill is a managing partner at Old Blackheath Companies, and he says that taking a June rate hike off the table is a big mistake. My guess is that the Fed really wants to raise interest rates, and I think just taking June off the table as kind of an exercise in abstract thinking is really the wrong place to be right now for markets. Mm -hmm. There is a risk that we have a great jobless number coming up uh, this week. There's there's a risk that we have CPI data that is way ahead of where we're, you know, consensus is at, you know, 0.1% right now. So uh, obviously these things can change. They're very temporal right now and they're not priced in the markets. And the situation with Greece continues to be a major source of worry for Europe. Columbia University Business School professor and Nobel Prize laureate Joseph Stiglitz says that a Eurozone exit is very serious for Greece. I think it's really serious for Europe because it's not only the immediate impetus. You know, Greece is small, but what it's saying is this contract, this union is a temporary union. You know, next time Spain has a little bit of problem, and they have a different government. People will say, well, you know, the European leaders don't bargain in good faith. They don't face the reality that their policies aren't working. And they, they're pushing these countries out. That means interest rates are going to soar. You, you really are bringing more instability into Europe. A real risk that the whole European Euro project, not the EU, but the Euro project, which was flawed from the start, uh, could be repaired, could be repaired, uh, is, is going down the tubes. Well, let's bring in our first guest of the morning, Michael Kurtz, who is the global head of equity strategy at Nomura Securities. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, the U.S. economy appears to be a mixed bag. Analysts have been pretty bearish, but uh, now the housing data suddenly puts everybody in a good mood. Uh, the question is, you know, how much does this kind of data, housing data, weigh into the Fed's decision? Well, I think the housing data is very important because it's a sector that has so much uh, carryover and, uh, you know, lateral and vertical connections with so many other sectors in the U.S. I mean, from finance to basic materials, construction, labor, and so on. And, in fact, construction labor has been one of the bigger missing pieces uh, in the U.S. job recovery over the past several years. So it, it's, it is very important. But I, I certainly uh, wouldn't want to go so far as to say that it's the key to the U.S. recovery. So let's be glad for every good data point that we have 
let's remain very watchful uh, in light of the fact that so many of the other data points in the U.S. have really failed to uh, jump convincingly upward after the, you know, what everyone regards as a weather-impaired Q1. Well, this is exactly it. I mean, can a weak Q1 really be attributed to the weather? Well, uh, I was on an extended business trip in the U.S. during late January through mid-February myself, and I can tell you that I had several legs of that trip uh, interrupted or canceled in light of the weather. So I, I certainly experienced it personally. Um, but I think it's a, actually a combination of both another year of rather extreme winter weather that certainly did at least, we can say, interrupt a lot of normal economic activity in, say, the Midwest and the Northeast. But on top of that, of course, we also had the uh, strike on the West Coast mm. ports, uh, which lasted through the 28th of February. And I can uh, certainly attribute some of the slowdown in the U.S. to the fact uh, that our physical trade infrastructure wasn't working the way it ought to. Michael Stewart here. Um, we've been reading in the last week or so uh, that El Nino is back for this year. Uh, is that going to impact our markets then, if, you, if you're thinking weather is impacting the states? Indeed. Uh, I think it's now at this point prudent to assume that we're going to have rather substantial interruptions in agricultural production uh, in important and major agricultural producing regions of the world. At this point, I would suggest perhaps that uh, higher soft commodity prices are going to uh, be uh, inevitable in light of the weather. Um, and as a result, uh, we're going to have to build those higher prices into a lot of economic models and a lot of uh, uh, corporate profit and loss models as so, well. So you're seeing a, a recovery in the commodity markets generally? Well, commodities, uh, I think we can basically split between the soft commodities where you do have much more of a weather input uh, into mm. the supply and demand equation versus hard commodities where, frankly, we're somewhat concerned that, uh, number one, China isn't really stimulating its economy as much as uh, the optical view of PBOC policy might lead one to suspect. And number two, over the next three months to six months, we expect a strong dollar trend to reestablish itself along with stronger U.S. data. And historically, a strong dollar tends to impart some rather uh, downward pressures on, on hard commodity or energy prices. I'm thinking the likes of iron ore uh, and oil, of course. Uh, Michael, you know, the ECB has hinted at front-loading a QE by accelerating uh, bond purchases to ease low liquidity over the summer. Can you tell us why? Well, the ECB's QE is um, a significant, significantly larger footprint of the overall European fixed income market than was the case with the Fed's QE or even the BOJ's QE. So there is this issue of, of uh, essentially scaring away too much of the regular turnover and regular liquidity in the market. This is the ECB, I think, being mindful of some of the technical unintended consequences of their program. Um, for what it's worth, I believe that, in fact, the, the QE program is off to a very good start, and we should regard the pickup in bund yields uh, effectively as a kind of a, a, a registration within the shape of the yield curve that growth expectations and inflation expectations are firming again, as opposed to deflation expectations, which was the, the very uh, aspect that, that the QE program was meant to try to, to uh, eliminate in the first place. So you do expect to actually see this money go into the real economy rather than into assets? Well, indeed, I would suggest that perhaps we're already beginning to see that, and I don't want to overplay the story here, but if we look at, for example, the ECB's quarterly bank surveys, we're finding that the willingness to extend credit uh, and to some degree an appetite for credit by European uh, companies is beginning to revive. 
And just by uh, anecdotal evidence, I can point to several of my own colleagues on the European continent who themselves have uh, taken out mortgages and, and, and purchased properties in some of the more beaten down uh, European property markets, such as Spain's, just in the in the last three or, or six months. Okay, Michael, one quick question before we wrap up. As a, as a here closer to home, as, as Hong Kong's equity rally starts to cool, word is that the city's fund managers are finding reasons to buy China's dim sum bonds. Is this true? I, I think it is true. Um, and what this speaks to, ultimately, I think, is the fact that uh, the, the the renminbi uh, asset market uh, outside of China is becoming a much more viable market in the sense that there is now a greater and greater volume of Chinese currency circulating effectively permanently outside the borders of China. There's a long, long way to go here in the sense that uh, we you know we still need to see uh, a substantial uh, sort of permeation of, of the use of Chinese currency into the global economy, but. This is a trend that's only going to go in one direction over time. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Kurtz, and he is the global head of equity strategy at Nomura Securities. The Nikkei is currently up a seven-tenth of a uh, percent, seven-tenth of a percent, to uh, 20,175. Australia's ASX 200 is down 0.1% to 5,613. And Seoul's Kospi is up two-tenth of a percent to 2,125. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.11 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 120.68 yen and one pound sterling. Sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars, 0.02 cents. Well, China's uh, local government debt is estimated to be somewhat uh, 22 trillion yuan. Uh, The central government is confident that the 1 trillion yuan debt for bond swap plan announced by the Ministry of Finance in March will not inject massive liquidity to the financial market. Uh, Let's bring in our next guest, Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is a Spanish banking group, uh, BBVA's chief economist for emerging markets. She joins us on the line now from Taiwan. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning. So, Alicia, can you tell us what you make of the plan and the PBOC's, uh, uh, you know, sort of new new plans, if you will? Well, uh, frankly, it's long overdue. I mean, we have had discussions, uh, and I'm sure the Chinese government has had discussions for a long time of what to do with all of this local government debt, which, by the way, is not only a stock problem, meaning that happened not only in 2008 and nine, but it's actually continuing, meaning that amount of debt is accumulating year after year. In fact, one could basically calculate, although there's no official figure, that China's consolidated fiscal deficit, meaning including the local government deficit, is of the order of 8% of GDP. So because of this problem is recurrent, it's not just, you know, inherited from from the time in which they they um, introduced this huge, uh, this huge fiscal stimulus plan. I think the government is absolutely right to do something about it. Now, what have they done is uh, just a little, as you rightly pointed out, and however, even being just a little, it did, it will surely inject lots of liquidity. That is not the problem because liquidity has been injected anyway. Interest rates are going down. We have a very dovish at the moment uh, monetary policy. The issue is who is going to end up 
having the paper that will substitute these loans, and that will be the banks again. Stuart, you had some thoughts? Yes, uh, Alicia, uh, as I understand it, a lot of the local government debt is in fact related to property loans and and, and the building of property, particularly in rural areas, uh, where there isn't a lot of usage of that property. So, um, And and debt needs to be paid back at some point by these local governments, and and many people are forecasting that they might actually go bankrupt on that. Do you believe that to be the case? not even our estimates. These are the national audit in China, or for that matter, the CBRC a while ago already calculated that about a third of these uh, um, loans would go bust. And it, wouldn't, it couldn't be otherwise. Uh, you know, if they were yielding uh, enough, I don't think that we would see this, this swap program. But so surely. Yeah, but if they do go bankrupt, isn't that going to just be like a house of cards uh, collapsing? Right across local government? I, for me, I mean, the issue is that they're not yet, the central government is not yet recognizing the losses. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the cleanest way to do this would be a pure injection of capital, I mean, a direct injection of capital from the central government, and they know how to do it because they did it in the early 2000s, as you know, through Hu Jin. And... and the, just inject the capital and recognize the losses so that banks continue to live. If, if you're saying they're not recognizing losses, that mis- no. must be an accounting issue as well. Exactly. They're substituting loans for bonds. Now, those bonds, who will buy the bonds? Mm-hmm. As we all know, I mean, most of the bonds um, uh, are today held by banks still today. As, as wealth management products? Yeah, I mean, either either um, there, there can part of it can be you know uh, their own uh, their own funds because they use them as collateral for the interbank market, and others might be you know just uh, holding on for others. But the point is, a lot of it is held by the banks. So you are substituting loans now held by the banks by bonds held by the banks. So the the, the actual risk still lies. Uh, on the banks. All right, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Emerging Markets at uh, BBVA. From the 1st of May 2015, the statutory minimum wage is raised to $32.50 per hour. Employees covered by the minimum wage ordinance are entitled to this rate, regardless of their mode of employment. Employees with disabilities can opt for assessment and receive wages according to the productivity assessed. For details, call 2717-1771 or visit Labor Department's website. The time is now 8.22 a.m. And last Friday's government announcement clarifying the requirement on Chinese banks to roll over local government's financing vehicles highlights the degree of official concern over the near-term downside risks to growth. Let's bring in Fitch Ratings ahead of Asia-Pacific Sovereigns, Andrew Colquhoun. Good morning, Andrew. Morning. So, Andrew, um, can you uh, highlight exactly, you know, what the fear is? Well, I think the fear is that the economy is going to slow 
uh, too hard and that that is going to put pressure on the labour market, that we'll have job losses. And uh, I think that uh, social and political stability really is the true bottom line for the authorities when it comes to steering China's economy. So, you know, of course, we all know that China is slowing down. There's a lot of talk about this. There is a lot of concern about this. The question is, what, in your opinion, is actually driving that slowdown? Well, I think it relates to the discussion that we just had, and I think it's uh, to a significant degree driven by real estate. Um, the uh, fixed asset investment into residential real estate ground to a halt in the first two quarters, having been growing kind of 30% year on year. Um, 12 or 18 months before. Uh, so it's an investment-led and credit-driven slowdown. Um, the authorities have reined in or tried to uh, contain activity in shadow financing, and that appears to have shown up in a contraction in uh, construction activity. I mean, after uh, the credit fueled real estate's um, construction boom of 2009 to 2014, uh, China has seen a, um, uh, it, the, uh, what's come through has been a, a short-term supply overhang. The ratio of property sitting vacant to uh, sayings was running at 15% or so for a few years up to 2008. Now it's over 30%. So a supply overhang that's um, weighed on prices and the property developers have also responded in terms of less construction. So what are the other measures that the government can or will or should perhaps take to help the situation? I I think that uh, the path so far has been predominantly in terms of monetary easing, Uh, although I would note that the monetary easing has been less aggressive or powerful than it might on the surface look. So, for example, um, in February when reserve ratios were cut for the banks, The amount of liquidity that was injected to the system at that point would almost exactly equal the liquidity that that was destroyed by capital outflows in the fourth quarter of 2014. So the point is that uh, if you adjust for the liquidity that's being lost through capital outflows, the easing that's been done so far has been less powerful than it looks on the surface. Um, To a great degree, the fiscal um, leg is what's been kind of missing from Mm. a policy toolkit. So... uh, Although Finance Minister Lo Jiwei has um, indicated that the central government budget deficit is being allowed to widen to 2.7% this year from 23 last year, partly to cushion the economy through this real estate slowdown, um, if we broaden it out to the local governments, the contraction in investment activity and local government finance vehicle activity is such that the overall fiscal impulse this year is bound to be significantly negative. Um, So we've got a 6.8 growth uh, forecast for the year. There's a bit of downside risk to that, I think, in light of the data year to date. Now, uh, fiscal activity, I mean, this is what everyone's saying is it's about time that, uh, uh, you know, uh, China basically took this kind of decision. How easy or how difficult is it to actually... um, use those fiscal tools on a province-to-province basis? I mean, is there a lot of, you know, difference, you know, when you go from one province to the next or uh, or not? I think that the economic circumstances province by province vary quite substantially and particularly things seem to be especially difficult in the coal-producing region in, in Shaanxi and in the so-called uh, Rust Belt provinces in the northeast, so Heilongjiang and provinces 
round there. So the extent of economic challenge that the provinces are facing varies. Um, I think there's also the impact of broader structural economic change in China to bear in mind, which is the migration of labour from the inland provinces to the coastal regions. We're seeing a lot of this, um, of course, again, I come back to the previous uh, person, we, we talked about it as being rural, but when you're talking about places like Shanghai and uh, Beijing and the coastal region, they're not so badly affected, are they? That's broadly our impression as well, and I think it's uh, maybe an interesting parallel with the kind of real estate market problems that became manifest in the US or the UK um, a few years before, where it wasn't really London and New York that uh, have turned out to have serious, lasting real estate problems. It's the provincial kind of cities where um, there was a bit too much optimism, perhaps, about mm. long-term growth prospects. And when you're talking about sovereign, we're talking about sovereigns and, and local governments, but in, in the property world, it, it is the developers, and developers are not going bust quickly enough, I think is probably the, one of the views that is being expressed in the market. Yeah, I mean, I'm straying into territory that's really covered by my, by my corporate colleagues, but I think our preference actually would have been, um, from that perspective, for a, a further 5 to 10% price fall, and more of a clear out among the developers. Among the um, property developers that we rate, most of them are on stable outlook, um, which uh, reflects the fact that we're rating really the, the very top cream of the market. Um, and we haven't seen as much of a shakeout and consolidation at the lower end as we might have wished from a credit perspective. Andrew, one quick question. Will China join the currency wars by depreciating the renminbi to support growth, do you think? We think that's highly unlikely for a number of reasons. One is, um, quite simply, face. Uh, we think that the Chinese authorities would hesitate to go that route because they want to um, convey the image that China's come as, as now on the scene as one of the world's great economic powers. They're also interested to have the RMB included in the IMF's SDR basket. But even if you don't kind of buy that argument, I think um, more, more substantially, uh, in terms of the economics, a currency depreciation would undermine what they're trying to do with the economy more broadly which is to rebalance away from investment towards consumption, away from corporate profits towards household incomes. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Andrew Colquhoun, who is the head of Asia-Pacific Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Uh, here we are almost at the end of the show. Let's take another quick look at the numbers before we wrap up. The Nikkei is up uh, point, uh, uh, six five percent to 20,157. Australia's ASX 200 down to tenth of a percent to 5,607. And Seoul's Kospi up half a percent to 2,130. Gold currently stands at $1,208.90 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $64.42. So, Stuart, here we are at the end of another Wednesday. What should we be keeping our eyes on? Well, I'm just looking at the date on my watch and it says there are 11 more days for the end, till the end of May with markets at uh, many markets all-time high I'm just beginning to wonder whether it's the old adage coming in sell in May and go away all right well we'll be watching Stuart thank you for joining us uh, today welcome. and every Wednesday that's Stuart Aldcroft and he is the chairman of City Trust and I'm Renita Malhotra wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing a quick look at the weather forecast for today It'll be cloudy with showers and squally thunderstorms. Showers will be more frequent later. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 84%. Time for the news summary with Samantha Butler. 
Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia are holding a crisis meeting today to discuss how to deal with thousands of people trying to reach their countries by boat. Radio Australia's George Roberts reports from Jakarta. International migration observers estimate there are thousands of people at sea in Southeast Asia attempting to flee persecution and poverty. Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand have been trying to stop them entering their waters, resulting in what the United Nations has called maritime ping-pong, as boats go from one country to another. In Putrajaya, south of the Malaysian capital Kuala Lumpur, representatives of all three countries are meeting to discuss what to do. Myanmar, the source of many of the asylum seekers, has reportedly refused to attend, but the Philippines announced it's committed to helping asylum seekers and refugees. Around 20 Cathay Pacific flight attendants have remained at the airport overnight as part of a sit-in over pay and benefits. The union's chairwoman Dora Lai told RTHK this morning there'll be another gathering at 2.30 this afternoon and if their demands involving food allowances and pay discrepancies aren't met by 10am tomorrow, they'll escalate their action. That would be a very sad situation. We we would have to decide to escalate our action, which is a very disappointing direction for ourselves and the um, general public. It could be a virtual rule and it could even be a strike. But if it would be a strike, uh, 